Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre-post yet still very racial America. You can say all that or just call us about race. It's a lot shorter. I'm Baratunde Thurston back with you taking a very short break from my very new job, which you may have heard about The Daily Show. And here with me in the Panoply Studios in New York are my co-discussants, Tanner Colby. What's up, Tanner? Not much. How are you? I'm super good. Excellent. asking. And since Raquel Cepeda cannot be with us this morning, we're joined by our very special guest, back with us again for the second time, the first to do that, Anand Girdadas, author of The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas. Great to be here. Great to be your first second. On this week's show, here's what we're going to be discussing. Republican presidential candidates provoke outrage with the A word and school segregation right here in our own backyard in Brooklyn. Then we'll wrap things up with, yo, check this out, our tips and recommendations. But first, what's going on with you, Anna? Things are great. I just got back from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. So it's nice to be go, I mean, to go straight from that to a podcast about race. Yeah. Is, uh, is really a jarring experience. <laughs> <laughs> From UMass Amherst to race in uh, New York. Yeah it's, yeah, it's amazing. There's just so many different kinds of people, both here and in, in the city and in this podcast. So yeah. it's, it's great to be with you guys. <laughs> Welcome back to Thank you. a more Thank you. Uh, wide-ranging palette of people. Uh, Tanner, what's going on with you? Not much except to drop again. Tuesday, October 13th, I will be at the Chicago Ideas Festival panel on race in America uh, with DeRay McKesson and a few other luminaries. I'm not a luminary, but they are. So you, um, Tanner, plus luminaries. Me, plus luminaries. Yeah. This is totally, by this is how affirmative action works, by the way. Mm-hmm. I get called to be on these panels from time to time, and it's like three black people who are PhDs or, and me. Yeah. Right? That's so Because they okay. need a white guy, so it's like, all right, we got to lower our standards a little bit. Or your PhD is implied. My PhD is implied. Like, he they must assume. be really smart. Yeah, I mean, he Come on, be. he's Tanner Colby. Yeah. It's not like his name's Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's up with me, yeah. and uh, let's get to it. How uh, about you? Oh, but first, you have some news. <laughs> yes, and this is formal and official and on the record and on the air. Congratulations on Chicago uh, Ideas Week. It's a great gathering. Thank you. And I just wanted to say that formally and on the record uh, and on the air. Uh, and they do shoot video of all that stuff and they release it. So I don't know if it's going to be live streamed, but if folks want to catch that, that should be a very interesting conversation. Uh, in my world, I report to the same location every weekday uh, for employment. Now, that is, is a breaking news situation for me. It's been a like, a, like a job? A job. I got a job. Thank you for boiling it down. Wow. You're clearly a writer. Uh, I got a job with The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, which starts very soon, September 28th. By the time you guys hear this, we will have been on air. And uh, my job is supervising producer, overseeing all the digital things, 
uh, and infusing comedy things wherever possible. It's a very all hands kind of show. So I am learning and loving and sleeping a little less, but feeling really, uh, really good about it. So that's my big, that's my big news. And that's why I haven't been around very much listeners because I have a J-O-B, uh, as my mom would say. And uh, it's been a long time since I felt that. My schedule is a little wacky. So you're basically now like a Japanese salary man for comedy. Because before you were like a roving guy, you were you were all over the place, yeah. you, right? Yeah, and uh, you're now just all over one one I'm place, all, and I am all over that building. I mean, I have uh, all the bathrooms. I rotate through them uh, to make sure I kind of diversify uh, my breaks. And uh, yeah, it's it's a totally different life than the one I've had for a few years, but it's the uh, it feels really good actually, and I'm adjusting to stability. Excellent. Well, we're very happy for you. I mean, we're happy for you in the way that people are when they're like also envious and therefore yeah. like not happy for you. But right. we're, we're like super happy. For no, you. and I, I can see that in yeah. your face right yeah. now. It's like, like we're happy for you, but like, but but also like not. Yeah, like right. also if, yeah. like I get it. I mean, because yeah, but like super happy. People for want you. this to happen yeah. to them, and so when it happens to me, it means it didn't happen to them. Yeah, and so there's that but like thing. a little not happy, you know. Right. But yeah, yeah, but mostly happy. It's mostly happy. Mostly, Coming right? through yeah. so loudly, yeah. so clearly. Yeah. No, but yeah. good for you. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get to uh, our two topics. Tanner, why don't you uh, lead us there? All right. Our first topic today is the A word. Both Jeb Asshole? Bush. No, but worse, actually. <laughs> um, Sorry, go ahead, man. So this week on the campaign trail, both Jeb Bush and Rand Paul made comments about assimilation, dun, uh, dun, which we dun. talked about uh, just uh, on the B side. You should also check out. So this is one of those debates that infuriates me because I like both sides are like infuriatingly wrong. Jeb Bush in Iowa told someone on the campaign trail that said, we should not have a multicultural society. America is so much better than every other country because of the values that people share. It defines our national identity, not race or ethnicity, not where you come from. When you create pockets of isolation, and in some cases the assimilation process is retarded because it's slowed down, it's wrong. It limits people's aspirations. And then Rand Paul doubled down on this on the Laura Ingram show. Randomly, he decided that all of the problems of Native Americans in the world are due to their lack of assimilation. He said, if they were assimilated within a decade they'd probably be doing as well as the rest of us instead we secluded them and isolated them we took their land and then we put them on reservations now both of these comments are tone deaf and clueless and they just come off in this ham-fisted horrible way of saying that we're right and you're wrong and you just have to do you just have to assimilate into white america because Mm -hmm. our values are better and it's very sort of like condescending tone but you know, no one likes the word assimilation. No one wants to brag about, hey, I'm the most assimilated guy here. But the three of us are all, to varying degrees, products of assimilation. Would you say about my mama? Exactly. Yeah. Baratunde's parents grew up in the Chocolate City under Jim Crow, and now he moves in tech circles and Harvard and The Daily Show and all these other places. Anand, your parents immigrated here from India, and then you went back to India and discovered just how American you are. I, interestingly enough, as the white guy in the room, have one of the more uh, unique histories for this is that I belong to one of the ethnic groups that went through forced assimilation in this country and that uh, my mother's parents in the Cajun community in Louisiana were forcibly assimilated in the 20s and 30s. Talk about these, you know, English-only education programs. They passed those, and my grandfather was actually beaten in school for speaking his native language, and they dragged Cajuns kicking and screaming into the anglicized world. Mm -hmm. And I think we would all say that our present economic successes are in some way tied to the degree to which we've assimilated, agree or disagree with that. So Jeb Bush and Rand Paul, as dickish as they are, are they wrong? And what is it about them that rubs people so the wrong way if they're not wrong? 
I think what's very interesting about the conversation is, you know, first of all, CNN uh, clearly acting on talking points from Jeb Bush's staff then wrote this piece saying, Jeb Bush, who is a who is a policy wonk and a nuanced thinker, <laughs> later explained, you know, mm. it was like so funny. But um, He's definitely b- burnishing his image as policy wonk. Exactly. Like, he writes books. Look at him. Exactly. Look at him. Exactly. Um, and, and and so the point that his camp tried to make later was that he was using multiculturalism in a kind of formal academic sense, because I guess those are the people he rolls with, which is to say a society where each ethnic group is kind of this separate enclave and has its own culture and rituals and values and almost doesn't encounter others, and that he was railing against that Mm -hmm. and saying that, in fact, in America, we have our differences, but we have a shared culture that binds us. If that is his point... I think there's something interesting in that. I mean, I think part of what actually makes, and I, I've lived in France as a child. My my parents emigrated to the United States from India and then tried it again because they actually, you know, they got a little bit stuck into a routine and they said, let's let's do this again. Adrenaline rush of a second immigration gambit. Was we, it like an eastward momentum, like from India to the U.S. is east, and they just skipped? Over well, yes, to except Europe we went, from they there. went. They went. Yeah, they went. Yeah, exactly. They went a little bit. They went to France. Like they they overshot. Thought, let's do this again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And they found a massive qualitative difference between being a brown person trying to come into America and a brown person trying to come into France. Mm. It is not the same. And part of what made it possible here was that there was this language of shared ideals and values that they could appropriate and and kind of adopt that would give them, in many circles, the opportunity to be seen as not different. And in France, it almost felt like you just couldn't do that mm-hmm. in the same way. It's not as open. I I think so many things about this. And I guess I'll, I'll jump off of what you said about France and the U.S. When you don't have a long history, you have to create something else to bind you. And the U.S. created commerce to bind us and washing machines and McDonald's and other bullshit capitalistic activities. It's like you could literally buy into this place. And if you presented with the same yard and you mowed your lawn and you stuffed yourself full of high fructose corn syrup, like, like you poisoned yourself to the same degree as the rest of us, you're definitely American. And there is a coded language and history around whiteness being the best American. But the U.S. is just so young that a place like France, which has much more homogeneity historically and, and a longer history and just older buildings yeah. to physically lean on and be like, this building is French. You can't understand this building because you're not French. In America, like, whatever was here, we washed away. And so we could just claim this highway is American, this barge, this film, this song that just is already a cultural melange of, like, African beats and Caribbean beats and, like, European this and that. Uh, So the youth of the nation here, I think, makes the idea of assimilation much more open to other folks joining it than a place like uh, anywhere in Europe. On Jeb Bush, it's very sad to see him because he doesn't, he doesn't speak so good in general. Like, you watch these debates and... Apparently, he's very articulate in Spanish. Yeah, he, he's, like, fluent. That's his first language, it seems. Like, he has become, to the best of his abilities, Latino in a way that his English is betraying him because he can't get a sentence out in a debate or in uh, an interview without somehow fumbling. And his brother was supposed to be the guy who couldn't work the English language. And Mr. Policy Wonk, Mr. Nuance, Mr. Educated is tripping up over words. I think part of what we're seeing with him 
is Trump is just getting inside his head and mm-hmm. and the whole field tilting to the right and like this chant to build the wall and he doesn't want to be left behind. Like his party is to the right of him. And so he has to throw out these thoughts that make him sound tough. And then he realizes, like, I'm not that guy. It's like pretending to be a tough guy. And like you shove, you, you're a bully in the lunchroom because all your friends are bullies. And then you go back to the kid later and like, I'm so sorry. Like, like you and I are cool. It's just my friends in front of my friends. I can't be seen with you yeah. because I'm not going to be cool with them anymore. And I really want to be cool with them. And so he just feels like a traitor to himself in, in moments like this. What irks me particularly and what conservatives get wrong about this, and it, it again violates the Big Lebowski rule, which I think came up last time, which is that, you know, you're not wrong. You're just an asshole. One is that they pursue all these policies or, or don't try to fix policies, historical policies, let's say, of segregated neighborhoods and segregated schools. And so you end up with these pockets of isolated people of color who mm-hmm. don't have access to economic opportunity. So they have no way to assimilate. And then we chide them for not assimilating. Right. That's number one is, yeah, is beyond hypocritical. Number two is that to talk about is in terms of our values mm-hmm. and that our values are superior. The Western values are superior. Like Western values are not necessarily any, some might be better, some might be worse, but are not net. Our values are not necessarily better or worse than someone else's values. But there are certain social and cultural norms that govern access to opportunity. You look at Madison Avenue, Wall Street, Hollywood, Congress. There are white social and cultural norms and language norms that you have to know to get access to these places. To me, I always look at it as just the same guy that asked me about my name on Twitter. And he's like, he said, do you think assimilation is something to be celebrated? I said, assimilation is not anything to be celebrated any more than gravity or friction or inertia or anything else. Money and power have a gravitational pull to them. It's so great that you brought that up on National Gravity Celebration Day. Exactly. That is really great. So, you know, assimilation is no different than, as I said in my book, from knowing Microsoft Word. If you want access to those places, there are certain things you have to learn to get there. I'm a Google Docs man, so that actually doesn't mean anything. Exactly. Well, now it's Google Docs. I need to change that analogy (laughs) to Google Docs. But, you know, it's not that Western norms are better. Mm -hmm. It's just those are the ones that we have here. And so you learn them. uh, And so Bush and and Rand Paul, as dismissive and and arrogant as they sound, they're not wrong. It's like, well, these are certain, this is a toolkit you need to possess Mm -hmm for socioeconomic advancement in this country, if my grandparents hadn't been forcibly assimilated, I wouldn't have it. I'd still be a tenant farmer in the swamp. Segwaying to the next uh, part of the conversation, we had the uh, email from, or the call from the listener in the last segment about the loss of Spanish, the loss of Dominican identity. And yeah, it's a loss. I go back to Southern Louisiana and I'm like, I'm kind of a tourist. Yeah. Like I, I know some of the food and the recipes and you know, I know the, the folkways a little bit, but I'm not completely of that world anymore. And it's definitely a loss, but it's a cost-benefit. What do you gain versus what do you lose? Mm-hmm. If my name was Clovis Robichaux and I talked like this, I would not have the opportunities that I have in America. I would like to do a podcast with Clovis Robichaux. With Clovis Robichaux. Yeah. And so one can totally understand and empathize with the multicultural point of view of resenting the white cultural hegemony. Why do we have to give things up when we've, we're the ones who've already suffered so much under you, mm-hmm. right? Why do we have to go and get on the same page as your program? But if you accept the premise that from a practical point of view, assimilation is somewhat necessary, all right, we've covered what's hypocritical and annoying about the right. Now, what's hypocritical and annoying about the left is that you have all of these people who are demanding socioeconomic equality for people of color. Close the wage gap. Close the employment gap. Close this. And then anytime assimilation is brought up, just a knee-jerk kick that says, that's wrong, that's horrible, when in fact, 
that is that one of the important toolkits you need to close all of those gaps? Someone should do a study about what we talk about. We end up in uh, this cul-de-sac right. of conversation where where do you draw the line on what assimilation even means and how many people can benefit from it? Are the people around this table, is our path the path for millions of others? Or are we slightly, like there's the balance toward luck for people like us and that that is not a scalable solution for the many other millions who haven't changed their names and shouldn't have to change their names. I mean, one of the the greatest problems with Rand Paul and Jeb Bush was this assumption, and you hit on it a little bit, Tanner, that we're the best. The best country far more than any other. And, like, I just can't do that. That's not true. Like, I think there's so many demonstrably proven objective measures to undermine that categorical claim of greatness. Like, America's pretty good. We're a pretty good country. We survived a lot of stuff. They should have you do the tourism. Yeah, like America is pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's all right. We got our problems. We got our great benefits, but it's just, you know, and national pride is also probably just a thing that most nations have. Right. Like even Canadians think their country is great. Right. And then obviously that's not true. Right. It's like it's obviously. (laughs) But now here comes the mail from Canada, uh, which I will filter naturally uh, because that's across uh, that wall that we're going to build up there. I get a little cautious and a little worried when especially with the loss that is contained within assimilation, the world and the balance of population and the values and perspectives that will come from people who are not currently in power is going to be, I think, what saves us all. Everybody chasing what has been working for whiteness isn't going to solve success and dignity and fairness for everyone else because there is something inherently unscalable and destructive and has too much loss associated with it for millions and billions of other people to walk down that same path. Whiteness has to move too. But and, that's, that's and the so point. assimilation has to be multidirectional. It can't just be, I'm Jeb Bush, my values are great, come to me. And he clearly, ironically, has demonstrated that right. in his bedroom, in his family, in his education, because he studied Latin American history and he went and met his Mexican wife. But whiteness has moved. If you look at where waspiness was when the Anglo-Saxon got here and Ralph Waldo Emerson was writing Mm -hmm. about whiteness, and then all of the Catholics and Jews and other people started assimilating, whiteness has been pulled. Whiteness has a lot of center of gravity and weight to it because it has so much power, but it has gradually been pulled. To my way of thinking, when people of color choose not to assimilate, taking aside the fact that people may not have the opportunity to, when you choose not to, you are basically voting for the status quo of whiteness. Because by integrating into the establishment, by joining it, by adopting some of its, as, as many of its tools as you need to succeed, that is the transformational process by which you pull whiteness to the center. If you stay at your HBCU or stay in your Hasidic community, we're not thinking about you. So you're not having any effect on us. And Can I uh, assimilate into this conversation? Yes, I don't know, man. This um, is the binary thing is working out real great. I know. The brown guy wants to talk. So I know. It's it kind of halfway in between <laughs> you guys. Um, I just want to make a point about incentives and a point about Western values. The tragedy of Jeb Bush is he could have been an extraordinarily powerful thing because he would have been the first candidate on the right for a party that essentially is a white majority party 
who actually had a very complex multiracial future of America background. Yeah. He has a bilingual household. He's called himself bicultural. He actually is ahead of the country on average mm-hmm. when it comes to his level of complexity. His le- his personal complexity on issues of race and culture is ahead of the average Americans probably. Mm-hmm. And instead he had to flatten that because of the incentives of the race. On Western values, I want to say, just make a slight defense of Mm -hmm. Western values, because I think we have to separate what you're talking about, which is the flaws and the failed model. Um, And on those things, you're absolutely right. We would benefit from people coming here and changing those things. But people are coming here for a reason. There are a few core values that are not whiteness and that are not just power structures that are actually very powerful here. The idea, the faith in the individual that is in our bloodstream does have disastrous ecological and other consequences sometimes. It is also an amazingly empowering and liberating thing. Mm. And if you go to some Vietnamese suburb of Dallas, those people know what it's like to live in another place and know what it's like not to be treated as an individual in your family, in your school, in your village, and to come here and, and have some access to an idea of being an individual. And I think there are a few other ideas like that, um, that are actually meaningfully different from what exists in other places. And I think we need to be able to separate those things from what is simply the working of power structures. Yeah. Bravo, Senator Anand Girdadas. Senator and, and Anand Let me add that the other tragedy of Jeb Bush is that exclamation point after his Jeb. name. It's, Jeb! He, it, Jeb! He is a tragedy on many ways. And, and honestly, like, if we're going to be... I, I don't think I would vote for Jeb Bush, right? Under most circumstances. Would you circumstances. vote for him if he had the exclamation not at the end, but also upside down at the beginning? Yeah, because that's <laughs> honest. That's honest. And that is embracing his biculturality. But like that one in parentheses. Yeah. Because he's only, you know, he's not. Or if he had an underscore in it, because that would say you're from the internet, but you couldn't get your username. Yeah. But you wanted to join. And yeah. I respect your attempts to be a part, uh, to assimilate into the techno future. Yes. There's, um, yeah, his complexity and his potential is wasted on his party. And that's really sad too because he's the like he could be sitting in this chair right now and it would be to have him on here talking and not running for office. Not no just yeah. and, but that's the set like he couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. He can't run for office and be this complex future American person. Yeah. He has to assimilate into his own reality right. which is a, a party dominated by historical fears and thinking and and their idea of what it is to lose as the country changes. But yeah. I would argue that this is not just the structure's failing. This is his failing. Mm-hmm. He he is a Bush. Yeah. His father and grandfather, I mean, his father and brother were president. Um, if anybody could overcome that and say, you cannot question my authentic whiteness yeah. and my right. whatever, and, and actually double down, like fight the party yeah. to win... Mm-hmm. It could be him, but he would have to be a good politician, which is something, unfortunately, yeah, he's in- not. And instead of trying to, like, befriend his bully by high-fiving him during a debate super awkwardly, it's like, come on, man. Like, you're you're not doing right. this well. All right, so uh, <laughs> as Baratunde mentioned, we will return to this cul-de-sac many more times, yeah. so we will wrap things up there. If you have thoughts about what Jeb and, and Rand Paul said, about your own experiences of assimilation, good, bad, Send us an email, send us a voicemail, showaboutrace at gmail.com. We want to hear from you and put your voices in the show. Can I ask a question? Yes. What, if anything, have you lost through assimilation? Yeah, that's an excellent uh, question, Anand. If you have any answers to that, let us know.
Tell us about your loss. Your tell Dear us. John letter to yourself. But tell us what you've gained as well. Please send those in. In the meantime, let's talk about the people that helped make this conversation happen financially. Our national conversation about conversations about race is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Now, that's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work, but even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch or window is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's the Rachel Maddow Show, y'all. Weeknights, 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. So thank you again, Rachel Maddow, for helping power our conversation. And Tanner, take us to topic numero dos. Okay, so this past week, Kate Taylor, a reporter for the New York Times, published an article about school rezoning and race and class and segregation here in Brooklyn. It's a topic we hit on a couple weeks ago with Nicole Hannah-Jones, and we got about a tenth of what we wanted to cover covered. And here's another opportunity to revisit it and one that's especially relevant to us. These are neighborhoods that we are directly adjacent to. I'm a father. Anna is a father. Baratunde. I'm not a father. Is not a father. No announcements to make in that um, area. But maybe eventually. So eventually. Eventually. Yeah. And so the... If this podcast is successful. If this podcast <laughs> is successful and he can afford it, yeah. So what happened was there is a school, PS8, which is an elementary school in historically very white, very uh, gentrified Brooklyn Heights. That school is 65% white, 35% black and Hispanic. And it is a wonderful school. It has a pass rate of... It, 86% on state tests, only 1% of students are below standards, but because of that, it is packed beyond capacity. It's running at 135% beyond capacity. It has a waiting list down the hallway, and I think I, in the article, something like two or 3,000 more units of housing are being planned for this district, and right. that's pure gentrification. That's all upper and middle class white people coming in and gentrifying what was formerly Industrial, Industrial non-residential right, area. and yeah. housing projects. Yeah. And the flip side of the story is that located right adjacent to this are the Farragut houses, which are public housing. PS307 serves them. It is a school that is 90% black and Hispanic. 90% of the students receive some form of public assistance. The pass rate for that school was 16%. 37% of the st- of the students in that school are below standards for the state. And that school is underpopulated. And it gets assistance because of that. It gets Title I funding because of its disadvantaged status. So in an effort to ameliorate this, the school board is proposing to rezone the schools. And a whole bunch of these white kids from PS8 are going to get sent to 307 when they redistrict it. And as the article points out, some community meetings, white parents are not thrilled about this, but black parents are also not thrilled yeah. because as difficult and as, as, as much as they struggled in their school, they have committed parents who have built a culture over there that is theirs. They have ownership of it. They have worked hard on it, and they don't want a bunch of rich entitled white people coming in and swamping the boat for what they've built, and so they there's some resistance there too. So just to start it off, if you were a parent at either of these schools, how would you feel and what would you do? Throw the kid into the fire. It'll make him tougher. <laughs> Let him at it. You know? Let him at it. Rip off the Band-Aid. I'm not a parent. I have friends who are parents. I have friends who have kids in schools in New York City and other cities. And there is such a uh, an extreme selfishness that parenting affords one, which is mm-hmm. like, I think you've even talked about this, Anna. You go from like very selfless and community-oriented to like, my kid. I want my kid to do super well. And you just stop... All your values kind of get tested 
by your personal interest in protecting and enabling this life to be better than than your own life. And I can only imagine the frustration of parents, you know, at the Farragut House School at 307 who have something, right? They they were bragging about the Mandarin classes they have and I'm sure it can be actually kind of nice to be in a school with space in it. Mm-hmm. And then to be not only flooded with just more bodies, which is going to be a change in frustration uh, attached to it, but to be flooded with people whose attitudes you already are pretty sure are not going to gel. Like the attitudes of entitlement, the attitudes of I have more education, so I know more about education, which does not follow, by the way. Just because you went to college doesn't mean you know anything about early childhood education. Just because you read some book on Amazon Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you know how to be a better parent. The fears of that level of entitled attitude descending upon your tiny, tiny slice in a world that doesn't afford you many slices, I I think I get that. Uh, So my short answer was flippant, but I I think that you you open the gates and you see what happens and all these kids will be better for mixing earlier than later. Uh, And like the kids will probably be better at sorting this out than than the parents are afraid of. Anand? I think what's really interesting about it is it, it points us to a larger problem, which is that our schools are not the same. They're not funded equally. Um, And part of what uh, reduces the political clamor of the majority and particularly of powerful people to do something about that is that powerful people's children generally have an escape into private school or better public schools or charter or whatever. When you have a moment, whether it would be because of a national policy where you'd kind of stop funding schools by, you know, property tax, which would kind of do what this is doing on a massive scale, mm-hmm. or just a single episode like this, in the short run, what you're doing is you're you're discomforting all these white parents and some of these black parents. But the deeper thing you're doing is actually raising the question for people, what if you only, what if your kid's school was only as good as the worst school that anybody has? Mm-hmm. Which I actually think is the first step to towards creating a very broad-based political coalition for having great schools for everybody. Um, And so I think this is a a very kind of hard, disorienting beginning that I would actually like to see more of. Uh, What better way to make, you know, white people excited about making black people's schools better than make them have to go to them? Yeah. Well, they didn't answer the question, what would you do with your kid? I don't know. I think it'd be a very, very hard decision for the exact reason that... I mean, I, I am willing to sacrifice my own interests mm-hmm. for my ideals. And I think it's much harder to sacrifice your child's interests right. for your ideals. Well, I'm actually facing, I'm actually, October 21st, I have on my Google calendar, is a meeting at my local public school to discuss the overcrowding at my school and basically all the schools adjacent to me. Yeah. We are dealing with the exact same problem. Way too many white people coming back to the city and it's it's causing a lot of discomfort. And I honestly have to say, what presents a unique opportunity is like nobody wants to be the first white parent to go to the 90% black school but like you got a, a group of you you're going there's safety in numbers right so you should feel good <laughs> oh if you're a white that's person that's an odd choice of words there safety in numbers I'm talking I, about their fears I know yes. I know it's so funny. like you have an opportunity now there's going to be you're not sending one kid into a struggling school you're fundamentally changing the landscape of the area and you can be a constructive part of that change yeah. or you can hide in fear and go to po- in private school and you know I honestly have to say, speaking, you, know, you said it's the, the self-interest versus principle. If I said, okay, well, that school is on the upswing and I can go be a part of the upswing, I'd do it. 
if that's a 90% black school that's never going to change and is just sending my kid there, I can't, so right? And that also goes to our earlier conversation about assimilation mm-hmm. and people of color resenting white people, pushing their values on everyone else. You can define integration as black people and white people mixing together just for kumbaya singing, you know, and holding hands and learning about each other. Or you can define integration as integrating marginalized people into the power structure. And in this equation, PS8 is the power structure and 307 currently is not. And so if you tell white people, all right, your kids are leaving the power structure, they're going to be pissed. If you say, we're bringing 307 into the power structure, then they'll go along, but then black parents will be more pissed off, right? So that's the challenge you face. Here's an interesting historical note, because I actually read about this school uh, a couple years ago with a book I read called The Invention of Brownstone Brooklyn. Which one, 8 or 307? Tanner's rummaging through his yeah, bag. Yeah, Tanner's rummaging. So it's called The Invention it's of Brownstone Brooklyn by Suleiman Osman. And it's a great book. It's academic. It's not like a gripping. You just carry that around with no, you No, I brought it with me. Okay. But it's about the gentrification of Brooklyn Heights. Yeah. And PS8 was a thriving all-white public school mm-hmm. in the 1950s and early 60s. In 1964, it was paired with PS7, which is down near where 307 used to be. And they said, all right, all you black kids and white kids are going to go to school together. That same year... St. Anne's School opened in Brooklyn Heights. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know, who don't live here in New York, St. Anne's is now one of the most hoity-toity, expensive private schools you can get. And it opened the same year as this integration pairing as an alternative for parents who didn't like bureaucracy. Yeah. Right? Where bureaucracy was a code word for black people. Right. And it was at the time a very affordable, hippie, bohemian, yeah. oh, we're going to do experimental learning kind of thing. Now this school costs $40,000 a year. It's only 34000 for preschool, though. Yeah. So, you know, if you can get in for that. But over the next 10 years, PS8 and PS7 both declined rapidly as a result of being paired together and parents then not wanting to be involved. PS7 burned down in 1974, so that was that. But PS8 basically limped along. PS8 was 307, Mm -hmm. basically. PS8 was an underfunded, underpopulated, struggling, failing school until about 10 years ago when, guess what? gentrification happened and all of these white people came back and the worst possible outcome of gentrification is that all these white people come back and we all go to private school right we need these people in the public school and so they they whipped these parents into shape and they brought them into this public school district and now it's so successful in less than 10 years really in five is when they did the turnaround in that period it was overpopulated and it was passing all the test scores so what you see at 307 it's gonna happen white people are gonna swamp the boat there with there's 3,000 some odd new housing units, high end, opening in this area. You kind of just have to get people to go along with it. The question is, how do you do that? You know, when you have these kinds of racial conflicts in, uh, let's say, the South or places like that, there's an explicitness. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing you can, you can say about, you know, a lot of those conflicts is at least everybody's straightforward about how they feel. When you have these kind of conflicts in settings like this, there's so much sophistication about, you know, supposed colorblindness that all of these racial anxieties are kind of laundered through layers of seemingly legitimate concerns Mm -hmm. about test scores and bureaucracy and things that are completely unassailable. Well, here, Um, I'll, I'll pause on that for just to say one thing. PS8 is currently 35% black and Hispanic. That's not nothing. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty substantial population. And right? it's also at 135% capacity. Capacity, yeah. right. It's so over, it's like a... It's, it's not 135 minus 35. Not 100. Right. 
And so it is a <laughs> racial images don't it is a racial way, fear, but... but it's not a fear of integration at all or keeping our all white school. It's a fear of not being in control. Mm-hmm. And that's the test because if you are unwilling to give up power, you're not really invested in the society, right? We're we're at a moment of high levels of divestment from all of our civic institutions. We privatize mm-hmm. everything. The the individualism that works well in certain versions of assimilation assimilation falls apart in collective systems like education right here. Right. Everyone will not be able to have a private education. My thoughts after hearing both of you parents talk about this, and I'm just going to group you as us versus them now. One is, even if your kid goes to an underperforming school, they still come home to a very over-indexed household, a very over-performing home, because their father carries around the invention of Brownstone Book Brooklyn <laughs> in his leather satchel. Unironically. Yes. Unironically. Like yes. he brought out a book about the history book and just quoted it and it wasn't a joke and it wasn't for a viral moment. And that's because that's who you are. And right. your child will benefit from that in a way that And suffer. And suffer. Mostly suffer. <laughs> Mostly suffer. My child suffers so much. And and you're a, a father, Anand, who's lived in France and in India and in the United States and Ohio and all those four countries have a lot to offer your perspective on how to raise this kid that whatever school they go to, there's a mitigating factor, which is the household and the language that you speak and the vacations that you take and the books that are on your shelf, if you even have shelves for books. So I think some of the the passion and the fear and the concern, I think these parents at PS8 are forgetting that they live in the new Dumbo and that they have dormant in their buildings and that they will always have an escape route unavailable to some of these other parents. But what? but in a, I, I fully agree with you, and that is also the beginning of the problem because the subsidy of having the great home and the dad who carries around that weird-ass book is that we continue to double down on this idea, uh, the modern American idea that self-cultivation is a private good mm-hmm. and the opportunity to become a person is something that is randomly distributed like lottery victories yeah. and is not something we consider a public service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is, uh, we are going to disintegrate further the stronger that idea becomes. And this is where collective versus individual has its, some of its greatest tension. If there is no common ground, then we're not a society anymore. We just happen to live next to each other for now. Do you notice how often now people, particularly when talking about other countries, but even this country, people will use the word economy f- instead of country or nation. Mm, yeah. Right? Or I have my friends in business, they'll talk about India as an emerging market, but even when they're not talking about the economy, they'll say, you know, I, I love going to emerging markets. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and that's, these language things no, it's, are actually it's, it's important. There's a great line in the Brad Pitt movie, Killing the Softly. The, yeah. He's a hitman, and the guy doesn't want to pay him for the job that he did. And he's basically like, he, he gives him a long speech about America, and he says, America's not a country. It's a business. Now give me my fucking money. Yeah. And that's that's it. And, you know, one thing that I think is uh, we talked about parental control and that, that sense of individuality and white parents have it and black parents have mm-hmm. it. One, one of the things that's fascinating and so perverse about education policy, and I don't understand it, and I'd love to hear from someone who understands education policy. I read about this in relation to another school. They had all these programs to attract white people. It was sort of the opposite of this. They had programs to try and attract white people at this underprivileged school. 
if they didn't get white people, they'd lose the programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was th- one thing here with 307. They're worried about wealthy, you know, middle class people coming in because they're eligible for this Title I funding, which uh, they're worried about losing if the school improves too much, yeah. which is insane. Like, yeah, it's great to help Perverse disadvantaged schools, but you have to stay disadvantaged yeah. to continue to getting the help. I don't understand that at all. You know, one of the things people forget about white flight and the suburbs, people think, oh, white people hate black people and they're scared and they ran away. It's very simplistic take on it. The suburbs were sold. You know, people, white yeah, people were very- that was a big marketing very, campaign to lure white people Very out. happy in their Italian neighbors and their enclaves. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you had to be sold on this idea. This is the American dream. Yeah. And it was a huge campaign to get people to think that that's what they wanted. And the problem of what they're doing here with, with this program and with integration programs in general or all these zonings is like, it's very bureaucratic. And it's like, all right, well, this is what we're doing. And both black and white parents are like, no, I want to decide. Yeah. What? So you have to make people think that this is their own decision, and you have to sell this idea. This is America. You have you do have to market it and yeah. advertise it and sell it. Yeah. And there's no selling of this idea of why this is important and why this is necessary because white people are not going to give up this sense of entitlement of we have to protect our kid from everything that's bad in the world, and these black parents. I empathize with where they're coming from. The world has taken everything from them. They have this one thing that they're trying to hold on to for their kid that they've created. But if there were any justice in the world, these 90% minority schools never would have existed in the first place. Yeah. And And so you have to be willing to let that go. White people have to be willing to let go what they've got. But you've got both people have to be willing to let go and create something new. And then mixed in with all this is the speed with which all this is happening, which is very unnatural because Mm -hmm. we have artificially inflated, a rapidly growing government sanctioned and encouraged housing explosions. Uh, we have a reverse marketing campaign away from the suburbs back to the city. Maybe we should just send white people back to the suburbs. You know, that had a, oh, we're that, not going. That had a, there, there are ways. There are, we have shuttle buses. Just shut down the Gowanus Whole Foods. There but you go. Here's so, the so thing, on, too. Everyone loves to shit on gentrification and shit on these arrogant, entitled white people coming back to the cities. But white people are coming back to the cities, and our money is coming back to the cities because it never should have left. Mm -hmm. The whole marketing campaign to send us out there was a mistake. And so now we're coming back. We are being forced to confront these issues in a way that we had before. We thought we were so happy out in the suburbs, and black people were so happy with their chocolate city. Well, guess what? Both of those were false. Both of those were illusions. Now we get to figure this out together. And one group has a whole lot of power, and the other group does not. And it's going to be difficult. And on that difficult note, tell us what you think about any of this, all of this. Uh, should we bus white people back to the suburbs? Should there be therapy programs for integration amongst children and their parents? Uh, should we somehow slow down the speed with which all this change is happening? Because it is not at human scale, but rather at market scale. Send us your thoughts, showaboutrace at gmail.com. Your voicemails were on Facebook and Twitter with that same username, Show About Race. And I'm curious to ask people, would you, do you feel it's appropriate or inappropriate to potentially sacrifice your children's interests for your ideals? Finally today, it's our Yo! Check This Out segment. Tanner, Anand, what did you come across that's piqued your interest? What do you think people should be checking out? I got an idea, Tanner, what you're going to say. Well, I have this book I brought (laughs) in my leather satchel. (laughs) Uh, No, it is a fascinating book, and especially to understand the underpinnings of a lot of what's happened with gentrification. People talk about it something in the last 10 years. Gentrification started before white people were even gone. 
and the actual history of why it started and where brownstone Brooklyn being both atypical and typical of the the national phenomenon. It's uh, a fascinating, informative read, uh, and check it out. It's called The Invention of Brownstone Brooklyn by Suleiman Osman. Anna? I'm going to plug two things, one old, one new. I loved the, the kind of amazingly reported profile of Donald Trump in Rolling Stone, which I thought actually tried to engage with and understand how this could happen. And instead of just treating it as a humor problem, uh, the way I would, he really investigated the intelligent power um, and understanding of this cultural moment that Donald Trump has actually brilliantly, uh, if also stupidly and boorishly exploited. It's a very important piece in Rolling Stone. The second, just given this conversation, is something old but but gold, um, which is the book Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc, which I think stands out to me as just one of the most extraordinary pieces of reporting on a poor minority neighborhood in New York City and um, the extraordinary pressures on it that kind of render all of our abstract ideological theories, um, you know, kaput. Thank you for that double dose. Something. Sorry, can I add one more thing to that? Yes, you can. Read every word Pope Francis said. Read it. Don't watch the videos. Read it. All right extraordinary, extraordinary speeches that are 10 times deeper than what any media can report. American Poetry Award goes to Pope Francis. For me, I have one thing. It's uh, it's something very new. It's a small little show called The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. It will have premiered last night or two nights ago, depending on when you're listening to this, September 28th. It's on Comedy Central. It's a real change. It's a real exciting time to be a part of this old yet new institution. Uh, Trevor was quoted in a New York Times article about the uh, existence of black people at the show. And this reporter said, no, is it still true there's only one black writer at the show? And Trevor said, there's actually an epidemic of blackness at the show now. And cited me and Joseph, who is a Ugandan writer, and David Kibuka, who is a South African writer. Trayvon Free has been there. Jessica Williams is still there. Roy Wood Jr. is still there. Al Madrigal is still there. It is a very multicultural, multiracial, and we've got at least three full-time women writers. Uh, Hallie is writing Lauren and De- Delaney, who are all new colleagues of mine, whose last names I don't know, but you can find them. So I'm excited uh, about this moment. I encourage you to tune in. It will be the same, but also different. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer today is A.C. Valdez. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com, and follow along with the conversation. And of course, join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at Show About Race. Or you can email us directly, showaboutrace at gmail.com, now accepting voice memos. Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. That's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Anand and Tanner and In Absentia, Raquel, I'm Baratunde Thurston, and we won't stop until racism is over.